Hi, friends. Welcome to Trashy Divorces. Welcome to Trashy Divorces. I'm Stacy. I'm Alicia. We're so glad you're here. Get comfortable. Settle in. Let's have some trash candy fun. This week, we picked World Leader Pretend as our music because uh, uh, we picked a couple of world leaders. Mine is sort of literally a world leader. Um, you covered the, the trashy divorce of... Just trashy life of um, United Kingdom Prime Minister Boris Johnson, who... Wow. We could also have gone with some T.S. Eliot. The Hollow Men might have worked. Who did that you was help? a lot of trash candy. <laughs> Instead of an R.E.M. song, but yeah. Yes, and you have... Uh, the... First trashy divorce of Joan Crawford, this time to her first husband. Screen legend. Screen legend, Douglas Fairbanks Jr. Four-year marriage, trash candy for days. I did So, so good. Yeah, I did not know how... Just her her backstory is terrible. Yeah, I didn't know. Thanks for that. Yeah, you're welcome. It was a, It's two really good stories this week. Mm-hmm. Welcome. We're excited you're here. Before we start the show... We've got a few thanks to give out to the people in our magic mirror who joined us on Patreon this week. We sure do. We would like to say a big thank you to Holly B, Carrie K, Liza F, Felicia D, Lisa, Dominicia D, Tracy M, and Tracy L. Lucy T, Alana M, Amy H, Bobby C, Mary M, Catherine K, Krista T, Lee B. You are the very best. You really are the very best. Thanks for joining us over on Team Trash Candy. What did y'all hear this week? Ooh, you did an expose on Vita Sackville West. That I was did. fantastic. I did. I did a two-parter on the love letters of Henry VIII. Yes, the... It was so good. <laughs> Dramatic reading of, oh my gosh, what a self-absorbed prick that guy was. A little bit, a little bit. Ooh, we did a follow-up on Billie Jean King, mm-hmm. changing the world of women's sports. Yep, and we've got a bunch of stuff that we've pulled from behind the paywall over there at bit.ly slash... Trash candy quarantine. So if you're cool in your heels while the outside does whatever it's doing, um, feel free. Dive yeah. in. If you need a little bit more trash candy to fill your hungry belly. Trash candy soul. Trash candy quarantine on that bit.ly link will get you right there. I think that's it. I think that's it. That's all of to, our business. You ready to go, go, go? Let's go, go, go. So, Stacey, you have one of England's finest trashy divorces today. (laughs) One of the trashier English people I know about, yes. Fantastic. I can't wait. Uh, I don't know if I would say finest in relation to Boris Johnson, but uh, all right. Since we are still sheltering at home, we're going to hop across the pond in our minds this week. Time travel. We're going to go visit yet another conservative politician with bad hair, his finger to the wind, a little playtime with racists, and uh, a bodily organ that seems to endlessly find its way into various women. Oh, Hmm. no. Amazingly, the sitting prime minister of the United Kingdom, Boris Johnson, has declined to reveal how many children he has fathered. What? Or realistically, with how many women. Oh, I have been so looking forward to covering him. <laughs> Can you imagine that? Like if the president of the United States was just like, I'm I actually not going to tell you how many kids I've got. You guess. <laughs> we know about six with Boris. Wow. Okay. And more. Okay. 
Alexander Boris de Feffel. Feffel. Um, Johnson. <laughs> That's such a mouthful of a name. Alexander Boris de Feffel Johnson was born on 19 June 1964 on Manhattan's Upper East Side. Really? Really. Huh. He's a Gemini, and his parents were a couple of young Brits following their dreams. His dad was 23 when he was born. He was a student at Columbia. His mom was 22. She was an artist. Later that year, Papa Stanley finishes his program, and the little family heads back to merry old England so that his mother, Charlotte, could complete her studies at Oxford. There would be three more children, and Dad had this career that took him to, like, he worked for the World Bank. He worked for the European Committee. Like, he did the, he was an economist, I think. And okay. Cool. Kind of worked for these big international institutions. Cool, except oh, that no. that meant this family was constantly in motion. On the move, yeah. Mm-hmm. So uh, by the time Boris was 14, the family had moved 32 times. Like, I've heard, I, I was an army brat. I've heard of a lot of moving around a lot, but they were like to D.C., to Brussels, to London, to outside of, I don't know, like the country estate to like. That is an extreme it's a lot. Ratio of movement. That I mean, that's is a lot. three times every year. Like, what? Yeah, two and a half times a year. That's crazy. Yeah, and dad was very busy with his own interests in the ladies, apparently. Oh. So when Boris was 10, the family was living in a suburb of Brussels, and his mother had a nervous breakdown that sent her back to England for months. Boris was shuttled off to boarding schools in England, and then in 1978, as he began his studies at Eton, where all of the upper crust for sure matriculates. Right. Um, his parents' marriage imploded. Oh. So Charlotte, I don't think she ever fully got back to perfect um, after her stay in in a mental health facility. This is all just tragic. It's very sad. So, yeah, I mean, she was just a little unbalanced. Uh, Stanley was just constantly unfaithful. It all took its toll. And in the chaos that followed, quiet young Al, as he had been to the family, and I think to his family, he, they still call him Al. Um, you can call me Al. That, if That's the name of your story. Unless, <laughs> unless you're not related to Boris Johnson, in which case you call him Boris. Or Bojo, as I prefer. Anyway, this quiet, shy, unassuming child really, like, he, first he's in, he's, he's in Etonian now. But yeah, like, his family just blew up. And so he develops this, like, flamboyant, if bumbling, devil-may-care persona. His teachers worried about his immense laziness. But he was charming and made friends with all the popular kids and all the upper crust of England kids who go to school there including Charles Spencer, brother of Princess Diana. Interesting. Lifelong friends. Huh. Apparently they're still quite close. Tip top. He excelled in debate. He was the editor of the school paper. Like, he's not Paris Geller, is that her name from? Yeah. Yeah, because he's lazy. But also he's a high achiever. He's a lazy high achiever. There Mm -hmm. are are those that exist. Yep. Yep. So he proceeded on to Oxford, where he studied the classics and philosophy. He played rugby. He was part of a notorious drinking society. And he co-edited a satirical magazine. On his second try, he was elected president of the Oxford Union. But it seems that Bojo wanted the title more than he wanted the job, which is going to be a recurring pattern for him 
His term is said to have raised questions about both his competence and his seriousness. Oh, Boris. The more we change, the more we stay the yeah, same. Yeah, it's really... Like the his when he was the president of the Oxford Union, it said that it was just not a not a remarkable period. His leadership is not particularly memorable. So it was at Oxford where he would meet his first wife, Allegra Moston Owen, and they married in 1987. The ceremony was held at her family home of Woodhouse in Shropshire. She's from some some money. And Boris reportedly arrived for the nuptials lacking both shoes and pants. Uh, you don't show up for a proper Shropshire wedding with no shoes, no pants. Pants. I feel like the pants are the bigger issue here. The ceremony also featured a violin duet that Boris had commissioned because he's weirdly romantic, but just he's a Gemini. Okay, yeah, yeah. Oh, fair, there you fair. go. Okay, what did this duo, violin duo, do? Oh, just a duet. Um, but. They just played it, uh, but it was something that Boris had had written for the ceremony. Like it's, it's one of those like immense gestures. But Allegra would later remark that the wedding was the end of their relationship, not the beginning. Oh, I no. mean, it's like, oh no, and they're quite young here. I think they're like twenty three when they get married, so not entirely unexpected that it wasn't going to work out. But anyway, both of them go to journalism. Boris stumbled a little bit early in his career. Because at his first newspaper job, his bosses found his work lackluster. So to try to spice things up, he invented a quotation, attributed it to his godfather, who's a historian, I think. Um, Anyway, attributed it to someone who I think he thought wouldn't rat him out. But then the godfather reads the article. That's call- why he's the godfather. Calls his boss, oh, calls Boris his boss, and is like, I didn't, I never said that. And Boris was fired. Oh, my. It's okay. <laughs> Boris Johnson always lands on his feet. Oh, God. So he got picked up by the Daily Telegraph, which dispatched him to Brussels. And he spent the next five years undermining the European project to readers of the paper. In Boris's telling, EU stories could have one of two angles, unless they had both. Anything the EU was up to was either sinister or it was just ridiculous. Mm. <laughs> so this won him a big following back home among like Tory politicians and readers who were loyal to the Tory party. Really, I mean, you see it play out over time. He was not slouching in his personal life either. Oh, no. By 1990, he and Allegra were on the outs. She would leave Brussels for a time. They had a big fight. And by the time she returned to try to patch things up and get a master's degree in EU law, he was already seeing someone else. Oh, well, don't waste any time, Bojo. In 1993, I've seen it both ways. They either divorced or the marriage was annulled. I genuinely don't know, which is... But they're done. They're done. Allegra has stayed classy over the years and has not trashed Boris in public. Although it seems that tabloids have periodically gotten friends of hers to mutter unkind things about him. One friend notes that Allegra stayed at her home for weeks in 1990 after a huge fight between the couple in Brussels. And that was apparently the point of no return. Oh, sorry. Um, it's not clear to me whether like that fight that they had was because Boris had started seeing someone else. Given what comes next, it seems likely. What comes next? Just more of that. Yeah. Just, yeah. Okay. 
well, okay, initially what comes next is that 12 days after the divorce or annulment or whatever is completed, he marries. <gasps> no, he pulls a Henry VIII mm-hmm. on Jane Seymour. Mm-hmm. <gasps> um, and his new wife gives birth to their first child five weeks later. Got it. Mm-hmm. So this is attorney Marina Wheeler. She oh, was my. born the 18th of August, 1964. She's a Leo. Okay. They'd been friends since they were children at the European school in Brussels, where I think French is the language. Again, these are very smart people who have sort of been running in pie crusts for a long time. Oui, oui. So they would go on to have four children together during a 25-year-long marriage. I was about to say, this is Gemini Leo. What can go wrong? Like, it's well, it's a pretty good match. What can go wrong? Oh, no. I mean, foppy old Boris was not planning to be faithful to his wife or, for that matter, his children. Oh, no. Boris returns to London in 1994, family in tow, and became the assistant editor and chief political columnist at The Telegraph, as well as a columnist for The Spectator. Apparently around this time, he confessed to a co-worker that he didn't actually have any political opinions, but this is a guy who desperately wants to be liked and even loved, so it's hard to know when he's expressing a truth about himself and when he's just trying to be liked in the moment. Like, was he lying then, or is he lying now, or... Is he telling the truth in both ca- both cases? Like, it's hard to know. There's kind of not a lot of there there from what I can tell. Grifter's going to grift, Stacy. Grifter's mm, going to grift. Yeah. Things were good. Marina was working as a barrister fighting discrimination, and Boris was advancing in journalism and just growing his following. The kids were growing, and late in the 90s, he was a frequent panelist on the humor show, Have I Got News For You?, which continued to grow his image And it kind of presented him, like he was from the Tory party, he's a conservative politician, but he's also this, he's got this just affable public persona that people really like. He's just a likable guy on the television. Like you could have a beer with him? Yeah. Like you could have a beer with him. Mm -hmm. In 1999, his ambitions only growing, he was given the editorship of The Spectator with the agreement that he would not run for parliament. So he takes the job runs for parliament uh-huh. and during the campaign he tells voters that if he gets the seat he'll step down as editor of the paper he wins the seat and does not step down no yes just a lion liar just a lion liar all lion over the liar. place okay mm-hmm. okay i think part of this was financial like he he did ultimately get kicked from the spectator and it was a, it was a pricey loss for him he had to scramble to put his life together again. there is no my word is my bond thing oh no happening no 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 pretty much if he tells you a thing you can count on the opposite happening for the most part huh until recently i mean we'll get there so aside from the paycheck he probably had another reason for staying on at the spectator after all he was having a not especially discreet affair with fellow spectator columnist petronella wyatt oh no which would reportedly lead to a miscarriage and an abortion or maybe two oh as well as a certain advancement of shamelessness that's apparently become the norm in english politics now in november of four they'd been together for about four years at this point probably on again off again because he's still married he's still got his four kids at home like whatever the Sunday Mirror did that incredibly British thing where they ran a story about the abortion Petronella had the month before, 
but didn't name Boris or Petronella because British libel laws are... Uh, yeah. Another detail, <laughs> Boris apparently refused to pay the 1,500 pound cost of the abortion. He thought that was too expensive. Oh. Mm-hmm. Oh. Mm-hmm. Okay, and let's not... There is shamelessness in politics worldwide these days, so let's not be too unkind to our English friends. I think it's safe to say that as Americans, we have no legs to stand on. Yeah, when that it is comes true. To... I just wanted to make sure that mm-hmm. we did not offend any of our no. dear listeners from the other side of the pond, since we're time traveling there. Today. But we did, we did cover the Profumo affair. Oh yeah, we did earlier on, mm-hmm. and that whole thing, like. John Profumo had to resign his seat because he was caught in a lie. And it yeah, was, lying used to matter. Yeah, it was somehow. so. It was such a dishonorable. Okay, so the Sunday Mirror runs this runs this article outlining this like anonymous affair abortion thing among prominent people, and then other outlets like swoop in with you know like boris resigning amid personal crisis stuff like that that don't directly Um, like you've got to read a bunch of different papers to know what's going on and so if you're a british politician you know what's going on and if you're a british journalist you know what's going on but among the public like it wasn't a lot of guesswork yeah and, and plenty of people just don't i mean they're just not it's not their job to be connecting dots out there so anyway uh in the twitter era this would have immediately been like just a huge giant story. dumpster fire right but yeah as it was it was sort of like the elites knew and and everybody else was just kind of whatever so when tory party elders who are hip to what's going on ask boris about this reporting he denied the whole thing all of it like the affair the termination all of it and then he lies to other papers about it thinking that this would also convince his wife that nothing was going on with his mistress. How'd that plan go? Uh, Marina kicked him out. Yeah. Uh, Days passed, and finally Petronella's mother blew the whistle to a whole different journalist. Oh, God. Which put the party into a really precarious spot, because, again, it was just, it's been understood forever that as a British politician, you don't just lie, and if you do, there are consequences for it. So, turns out that Boris had a different view. Oh. <laughs> and, in fact, he argued to party leaders, no, no. Lying's cool? Lying is fine, and lying about sex is probably desirable. And he's like, look at Bill Clinton. <sighs> Monica Lewinsky completely took advantage of him, and nobody made him resign. That's That was that was Boris's take on Monica that. Monica took advantage of Bill? That was... Boris's okay. take on that. Okay, mm-hmm. cool, cool. Yep. I may not agree with that particular hot take. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you think? Okay. Um, so from Boris's perspective, like one, his sex life was no one's business, and like he could have all the affairs they want because sure. it didn't impact his ability to do his job. Arguably. Like, I don't know. At this point in time, like what is true anymore? Who knows? But if all of that is true, then you at least stand up and be counted with, hey, I'm a cheater. I'm fathering children out of what, like, you go ahead and stand. Like, if that's your leg to stand on, that it doesn't fucking matter, then it doesn't fucking matter. And you claim what you do. You don't lie and lie about it. There is some contradiction in his arguments here, yeah. I see a fallacy. Hmm. 
From his perspective, the big problem was that other people were nosing around, not that his personal life was a shambles reflecting the hollowness at the core of his person. <laughs> so he's a member of parliament, but he had two like shadow cabinet seats or something. I don't know. I'm not clear on that element of of British politics, but the conservatives were not running the government at the time. So I think the shadow anyway. Uh, he refused to resign those shadow cabinet positions. Uh, why would he? And so Michael Howard, the head of the conservative party, had to fire him. So that made some big headlines. But Boris remained as a member of parliament and he was reelected in the 05 election. So again, Labor won the 05 election. This was Tony Blair's era, I believe. Michael Howard resigned as leader, which is what you do when your party loses the general election. And David Cameron took over for the Tories. Uh, and he gave, he let Boris have a shadow minister, I think for education, because Boris was hip with the youngsters. I, I'm so confused by Hello, all this. Hello, fellow youths. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> um. Yes. In April 06, the tabloid News of the World alleged that he was having an affair with another writer, journalist Anna Fezakerly. Wait a minute, is he with Petronella? No, they've broken up, I believe, after, okay, he, so st- after he skipped out on the abortion bill, I guess. So the 20-plus year wife is out, Petronella's no, out. Oh, she's still, still in. Mm-hmm. Jesus Christ. They completed, okay. Yeah, they completed their divorce in February of this year. What? Yeah. Spoilers. He, they're just, he's just having affairs so yeah the news of the world and this was actually part of the phone hacking scandal oh my god news of the world like reveals this affair neither one of them ever give a comment to anyone about it and instead boris just directly hires her to work for him and that's the end of that scandal so yeah anna would later reveal in the guardian that she was a victim of the phone hacking scandal that we also covered with rupert murdoch i think so yeah yeah, and apparently the paper dispatched private investigators like to follow her during a family vacation. I mean, it, it's super gross. Brutal. Yeah, the British tablet, like, there is part of me that is a little sympathetic to the the Johnsonian argument that, like, I don't actually have to tell the truth to these horrific, ethicless people. And, like, Harry and Meghan have sent them all letters saying, like, we're going to continue to work we're with out. the press, but you guys don't count. <laughs> so, I don't know. It's... um there is some nuance to this that does not actually diminish the shamelessness of Boris Johnson. Complicated. Professionally, Boris had been fired from The Spectator in 05 when a new chief came in, but he remained as a columnist for The Telegraph, and in 2006, he presented a well-liked history show on TV called The Dream of Rome. The following year, he produced a sequel through his own television production company. For 2007, he was the third highest earning member of parliament, pulling in more than half a million pounds. I'm so sorry. I had a quick question. Mm. Was the dream of Rome about like the idea of Roman democracy and every like the. I believe so. Yeah. Fantastic. There's nothing at all hypocritical about that. The classics and philosophy at Oxford. Awesome. He's awesome. And historian, as they say, he's not. More importantly, these TV gigs kept him close in the public mind and made him a very relatable figure to the general public. We've seen, like, this happened in America, too. That's all I'm saying. Arguably, this particular public profile, as well as some tactical shifts away from the Conservative Party's more racist positions, is what led him to be the odd duck Tory 
elected twice to be the mayor of one of the world's premier cosmopolitan cities, London. Oh. Mm-hmm. But Boris is going to Boris. So, <laughs> like, he wins the election in 08. And he's just, he, like, shows up late to meetings and events and... He, he didn't wear pants to his wedding. What do you expect? He took a long holiday out of the country. Like, he super, he wants the title. He does not want the job. Uh, he goes to Beijing for the 08, the closing of the 08 Summer Games, because London has it for 2012, and he's going to wave the British flag, and, like, it's a whole thing. But he didn't button his jacket. Like, he's just, like, this... Uh- was he wearing pants? Well, the Chinese government was incensed. Oh, like, they were so offended that he would show up to their party looking like, from their point of view, some homeless guy. Okay. So, little international incidents with all of this. But Londoners were kind of like, you know, we knew he was a carnival barker when we elected him. So, you know. Bor- He's barking. Boris being Boris. Yeah. 2009, Boris. Still being Boris. He's still married to Marina at this point, keep in mind. And he secretly fathered a daughter with an arts consultant named Helen McIntyre. Oh, God. The Daily Mail broke this story in July 2010. And then there was this weird anonymous legal fight that, again, Britain has really intense libel laws compared to what we have here. And she wanted a privacy injunction against the Daily Mail to keep the identity of the father of her child secret. At the same time... She had sat for a photo shoot with the, with like, I guess the baby with the Tatler, and she like had hinted to Condé Nast's publisher that Boris was the dad at some cocktail party. Why would you party. do that? I don't know. So in 2013, like the British Court of Appeals uh, issued a ruling that said that the public has a right to know that Boris is a cheating shitbag who fathers children willy nilly and is completely reckless in his personal life. Fair. Fair. So I feel like this may have been the last straw with Marina. I Like, I don't think that they were having like a super tight marriage by this point. Anyway, they would not announce their separation and pending divorce until 2018. Wow. Um, and at the time, like there was a jointly issued statement that said that they had separated some time before. <laughs> they said months, but I'm wondering if months actually meant years, possibly decades. Decades, Yeah. <laughs> I don't mean to laugh, obviously. Uh, This must have been just rough. Just rough to be married to this guy. All right. So, yeah, the joint statement said they continued to be friends and co-parents and that they would not be commenting further. And by this point, of course, Boris had once again stuck his finger into the wind and in 2016 became kind of a, a late joiner to the Brexit campaign to remove the United Kingdom from the European Union. And just for a little touch because boris is still writing columns regularly for like the conservative press over there oh goody so when obama encouraged the uk to remain in the eu and david cameron was the prime minister was the was the tory prime minister he also was for the uk remaining in the eu so obama's like yeah do what do what cameron says boris johnson retorted that obama has quote an ancestral dislike of Britain because of his, quote, part Kenyan background. So oh, my God. That's the kind of guy Bojo is. Uh, he served as foreign secretary for two years under Theresa May, and then he quit to undermine her. And then after her resignation, following the defeat of her Brexit agreement in Parliament, 
He won the Conservative Party leadership campaign and became Prime Minister of the United Kingdom on July 24th, 2019. He is the second Prime Minister to be born outside of the British Isles and the first to be born in America. It's unreal. He's also the first UK Prime Minister to go through modern divorce proceedings while in office. Little trivia night factoid, the Duke of Grafton was granted a divorce by Parliament in 1769. I think that's the only other time in history that a sitting Prime Minister has uh, been divorced. (laughs) But, you know, that was before divorce court was a thing. The world is off the damn rails. Oh, just wait. Final agreements with Marino were completed and approved by a judge in February 2020, by which time Boris, now 55, had been living with Carrie Simons, a Tory media relations executive, for quite some time. That relationship became prominent in 2019 when police were called to their home by neighbors who became alarmed after they heard shouting, screaming, banging, and Simons yelling, get off me and get out of my flat. What? So a neighbor hears this like middle of the night fight, goes and knocks on their door. No one answers. So he calls, he or she calls the police, but also helpfully recorded everything just in case Carrie would need it. Cause Carrie's the neighbor, like, you know, I'm watching out for my neighbor, oh, but then no. after police come, everything's okay ish and police leave and no one's arrested. The neighbor like lets the guardian listen to the recording. Which oh my is, God. Which is, from trashy divorces, we say thank you, neighbor. Is it bad? It's not great. <laughs> so June 21st, 2019, this is how it was reported. On the recording, heard by The Guardian, Johnson can be heard refusing to leave the flat and telling Simons to, quote, get off my fucking laptop before there's a loud crashing noise. Simons is heard saying Johnson had ruined a sofa with red wine. You just don't care for anything because you're spoiled. You have no care for money or anything. The neighbor said there was a smashing sound of what sounded like plates. There was a couple of very loud screams that I'm certain were Carrie, and she was shouting to get out a lot. She was saying, get out of my flat, and he was saying no, and then there was silence after the screaming. My partner, who was in bed half asleep, had heard a loud bang, and the house shook. (gasps) Apparently everything's fine. On February 29th, 11 days after his divorce from Marina wrapped up. 11 days again? (gasps) Well, it was 12 days was how long it... Uh, still mm-hmm. inside of a fortnight. Boris and Carrie announced their engagement oh as well God. as their forthcoming child. Mm. Like, I don't want to downplay how weird 2020 has been for Boris Johnson. <laughs> so in late December, the UK held a crucial general election that was really a referendum on whether Brexit would proceed or the country would spend another few years just mired in Brexit stuff which I think everyone has been exhausted by. So Boris ran a smashingly successful campaign for the Tories under the banner Get Brexit Done, while the Labour Party under Jeremy Corbyn ran this weird, we're also kind of for Brexit, but open to a second referendum probably, and also here's a laundry list of other things we'd love to do. And Boris's victory was immense. On January 31st, the United Kingdom formally left the European Union, and began an 11-month transition period to negotiate trade deals, all that stuff. But in the hindsight of our sheltering in place for the last several months, we know there was a different kind of clock ticking. Oh, for sure. And that these weeks between mid-February and mid-March would, in hindsight, be a crucial period during which governments around the world would either get their arms around the quietly exploding coronavirus pandemic or not. 
Bojo, blundering and bumbling and playing everybody's affable friend, did not. Mm. He skipped numerous briefings on coronavirus, took an entirely half-hearted approach to mitigation measures, and managed to contract the illness himself. Uh, he was hospitalized with COVID-19 on April 5, was in the hospital for more than a week. And then, it seems like it's been a year ago. Doesn't it? has been a month. I had to look up these yeah. dates because I was like, this had That's to have been right. like, how did he have this in 2010? Like, <laughs> no, it was... Anyway, he was hospitalized for over a week, uh, was released, recuperated for a couple weeks, returned to work full-time on April 26th. So that is a three-week run from... Wow. And he reported symptoms first at the end of March. Like, he tested positive at the end of March. So... It's a bad, bad disease. Um, his son with Carrie, <laughs> the sixth known child of Boris Johnson, was born three days later on April 29th. I, it's been a really action-packed year for this guy. Uh, un- unbelievable. So my understanding is that while snap elections can be called somehow, odds are that Bojo is the head of the UK government for about the next five years until the next <sighs> scheduled election. How many mistresses and babies will he squeeze in during this period? There's no telling. Stay tuned. So for Boris Johnson, um, I'm awarding six known trash cans drifting away from (laughs) Europe on a sea of bluster and bumble. That's a hell of a trashy divorce right there, Stacey. Well done. Thanks. Yeah, he's just, uh, he's, he's a nightmare person that people seem to really like. It's weird that. It's weird. Weird. I mean, obviously not everyone really likes him, but but like enough people really like him that he's a very successful politician, despite being a nightmare person. I need some more coffee <laughs> after that. that. And uh, let's take a quick break. Let's take a quick break. And come back with a, oh, a fantastic yeah. trash candy divorce. Speaking of world leader pretends. No lie. All right. Back in a minute. Hey, Trash Pandas, when you need a brain break from your day, let me recommend the game June's Journey for Android and iPhone. It's a hidden object mystery game where you are solving a murder, uncovering family secrets, and, I don't know, exposing official corruption? All in an extremely stylish 1920s setting. Every scene takes you deeper into the mystery and introduces you to an expansive cast of characters as June Parker explores the questions surrounding her sister's apparent murder-suicide at the family's beachfront estate. Add your own elements to the island, from lush gardens to gorgeous new buildings. This story has so many twists and turns. Right now, we are on a global journey attempting to rescue June's niece, Virginia. It's a great combo of gameplay. It's a memory puzzle, a design project an intriguing storyline with genuinely fabulous art. When you want to let your mind wander, relax into this glorious 1920s murder mystery and get lost in the fun. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. Okay, I have to admit, I know very little about the... I just, your subject this week has quite a rep, and I would love to know more facts. You are in exactly the right place at the right time. Great. This week, Joan Crawford and Douglas Fairbanks Jr. Hmm. What a story. This one is way too delicious in the extensive trash candy department, not to take the time to explore it in depth. 
Like I drew Joan Crawford, but I'm like, no. Well, because she's got a bunch of, she's an all-star, right? Correct. As the quintessential Aries personality, Joan Crawford would be really pissed if I rushed her story. Gotcha. The trashy divorces of Joan Crawford, like like her legend, she's, her career spans 45 years. Okay. Her legend is bigger than that. Because when we think about her, I think it is very much shaped in our social conscience by... Mommy Dearest? Correct. Okay. But we're not going to talk about any of that today. Partly because the world is disturbing enough, just on a regular <laughs> level. I thought we could talk today about Joan Crawford pre-children. The making of who will become Joan Crawford. Her first marriage to the son and stepson of Hollywood legends. Joan and Douglas Jr. were the high-profile couple of the day. He is landed Her star is on the rise, and whoa, baby. When the press gets news of this, they're going to have a field day. Our lovebirds are going to end up being married for about four years, but there's so much trash candy. You ready? Mm -hmm. Tell me. Douglas Fairbanks Jr. We're going to start with him today. J. Douglas Elton Ullman Fairbanks Jr. (laughs) Dougie. Dougie. Dougie J. Okay. Is a Sagittarius baby. He's born December 9th, 1909, to a very famous father and a very, very wealthy mother. Dougie Jr.'s dad is Dougie Sr., Douglas Fairbanks. He is the swashbuckling, dashing movie star who has set the standard in Hollywood for what movie stars are supposed to be. Dougie Sr., kind of a big deal. K-O-A-B-D. Built the archetype of the leading man. Correct. Okay. Dougie Jr.'s mom is Annabeth, who is an heir to a cotton fortune. Dougie Jr.'s their only child. And it turns out when Jr.'s like six or seven, Dougie Sr. sort of falls for the, where he's the king of Hollywood, he will fall for the queen of Hollywood, the also married actress named Mary Pickford. This pretty much ends Annabeth and Douglas Sr.'s relationship. Junior's like nine years old because Douglas Sr. and Mary Pickford are going to go on to marry and become the king and queen of Hollywood. Mom Annabeth will also remarry like immediately, March of 1919. As soon as that divorce is final, she's on the boat to her next marriage. It's a complicated childhood okay. that Dougie has. Yeah, and in that era too, it's unexpected. So Junior lives mostly with mom. Like, money is not ever going to be a problem. They have homes in New York, California, Paris, London, cotton money. Junior as a kid really likes sports and art and uh, is a regular enough kid as you can be, I guess, with the parents that you have. But the one thing that Junior never has is affection from dad. Douglas Fairbanks Jr. releases a book much later, a biography later in his life. And this isn't from a New York Times piece by Ron Alexander. Again, all references are on the website, y'all. So go to TrashyDivorces.com for that. Junior says, I was a shy, awkward sort of boy, and my father's frequent absences from home, along with my hero worship for him, made me even shyer. I had no particular desire to be a personality like my father, nor was I equipped to be one. I was determined to be my own man, Although having the Fairbanks name did make it easier to get into an office to see someone. I'm sure. Which I guess Dougie Jr. does. He's going to start to try this acting thing when he's like 13, 14. 
And by the mid-1920s, like, he's continuing to land parts and working steadily through the decade. And in 1927, we're going to leave an 18-year-old Dougie Jr. on the Trashy Divorces Depot, which right now is the movie set. He's working with Greta Garbo and John Gilbert on a little film. And let's take a minute to meet our bride. Lucille Faye Lasseur is born in, who knows what really year maybe 1904 (laughs) maybe 1905 maybe 1906 maybe 1908 it's 1906 if you're going to go off the census of the family okay which after you hear about the family you can decide for yourself whether or not they're reliable okay but for the purposes of the story i am basing lucille's age 1906 for time references in this story. It's the best indication we have. Well, and like, I think consistency is probably more important than factual accuracy (laughs) in some of these stories. Lucille is an Aries. She's born on March 23rd. And I don't know if you'll ever find a truer Aries personality than old Lucille, who eventually, by the time she's grown up a little bit, will insist only on being called Billy. That is her name, Billy. All right. Okay. Billy's born in San Antonio, Texas. She's the third of three children to dad Thomas and mom Anna. Billy has an older sister, Daisy, who dies before she's born. Hmm. She has an older brother, Hal. Dad Thomas actually takes off before Lucille is born. He's out. Well, the family's destitute and mom Anna is like, I'm out of here. There are way too many of my husband's relatives around San Antonio she picks up, moves to Lawton, Oklahoma, and hooks up. I'm sorry. I'm like, where? Lawton, Oklahoma. <laughs> like, how, how did she even find that? <laughs> she hooks up with this dude named Henry Kaysen. Nobody's ever sure if Anna and Thomas really got a divorce. So Anna's going to go on to have a few more men in her life that maybe she's married to, maybe not. Gotcha. So this is like 1908. And Henry and... Anna are shacking up, but stepdad Henry runs the local theater and opera house. In Lawton? In Lawton. Okay. And lets Billy hang out and gets her into the scene and talk to the actors, and Billy wants to be a dancer more than anything. Okay. Billy and her brother Hal are going to go on to make shows that they give, you know, in the barn, charge kids to see them. They're kind of a hit. (laughs) That's pretty cool, actually. Billy's going to end up slicing her foot on broken glass one day in the yard. Three surgeries. She'll spend 18 months recuperating with no school. Yikes. Yeah. And doctors tell... Did she, like, cut it off? Like <laughs> She sliced it pretty... To want to be a dancer, like... Oh, I see. I see. So doctors she... aren't sure she's going to even walk normally Cut again. muscles. Okay. Mm-hmm. Now, at the end of this, <laughs> the ir- irony here is that Joan Crawford will somehow credit Henry for her great start in life, but... This is where things begin to not go that great. As far as I can make out, in 1916 or so, Billy comes across a big-ass bag of gold in the family basement. It's the dream. And she is naturally curious Mm. about what a big-ass bag of gold is doing in the basement. Yeah. And the authorities end up getting involved. What? And slinging Henry up on embezzlement charges. Which end up being dismissed, but the scandal does two things. First, it gets the family run out of town, and they're going to move to Kansas City. Minus the bag of gold? 
That sucks. Undetermined what happens to the bag of gold. I haven't figured that part out yet. But the second thing this does, Billy, who is 11, who has only known Henry as her real father. She's never known that he's not her dad. Because other dude left before. Older brother Bully, mean ass Hal, tells Billy that Henry is not her father. Hmm. Okay. What happens here? Not any better. Because now Billy and her stepfather are going to be sexually involved for a while. She's 11. It's creeps. Oh, so creeps. Joan Crawford should have taken that bag of gold and run. Now we'll talk to later biographers and be fine. Like, I was 11. I knew what I was doing. This is terrible. Yeah. Mom is going to catch wind of this. Mom is going to blame Billy. Not her lousy husband. Oh, my God. But Billy... And it is off to Catholic boarding school that Henry is now slung up to pay for until mom has had enough of Henry. And then Henry's not paying for boarding school, but we hate Billy and she can't come back. So Billy stays on at boarding school. This is St. Agnes, but is a working student. So as a teenager, Billy is working, cleaning, washing, and cooking for 30 rich girls. As the poor girl. Right. Like, this is fairly traumatic. You've yeah. been groomed as a child for sexual abuse. Now you're working in an adult job as a high schooler where you're constantly made fun of. Like, deep insecurity here. Not hard to imagine how absolutely insecure this would make. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. So by the time Billy's like 13, 14, 13, she somehow runs back into Henry again. And they resume their abuse. He's going to die this same year, 1919. So Billy's 13. Mom has now hooked up with a new dude whose name is Harry Huff. She's running a laundry, like a laundromat, which Billy sometimes works at, which after the boarding school, coming back to work in a laundromat, like all of this scars Billy for life. We can't have Billy hanging around. I have a new man. So back off to boarding school you go. This time it's Rockingham Academy. But by 15, Billy's like, I want to dance for you. I'm done. Like, So she's going to quit school, get a job as a sales clerk at Klein's department store. But that sucks too. So she's like, okay, I'm going to enroll in Stevens College, which she does. And the reason I'm using 1906 is the baseline year for her birth is that's the date of birth she writes for her college application. It like there's no reason for her to lie at that point about her age even though there will be Down the numerous road. reasons in the future. Yeah. Okay. College is fine for Billy for like 4 months and then she's like, "Nope, I'm out." So, 1923, sort of the make or break year. Billy's doing dance contests and trying to survive. She moves to the big city of Springfield. She does get a role in a show, but then it busts. Then she's back with Hateful Mom at the laundromat, but not for long. Because soon, Billy has moved in with Eddie Smith, Fast Eddie, her boyfriend. And he's kind of bad news. He's one of her dance partners. But maybe they make some peep show porn kind of things in order to have enough money to live. Experimental. Exciting. Well, these movies may come back to haunt Joan Mm. sometime in the future, but... 1923, not a good year. She ends up back in Chicago. She's dancing at a strip club and getting arrested for prostitution. Hmm. So not great. It's looking pretty bad. But things are about to turn around for Billy 
mostly by the weapons that she knows well how to use because she's fashioned them herself. 1924, it's off to Detroit. She's spotted by J.J. Schubert and offered a spot on Broadway. And Billy now goes back to her birth name of Lucille Lesore. And this role will lead to another role where she is then spotted by a Hollywood executive named Harry Roth, who's in New York to quote-unquote scout, which translates to how do I find sweet, desperate, easy honeys to make promises I don't have to fulfill to. Yeah. But this one actually works out. There's a casting couch. There's a promise of a contract, which miraculously enough does happen for Lucille. She gets a six-month contract for $75 a week. She borrows 400 bucks, lands in Hollywood January 1st, 1925, and it's on. <laughs> but let me clarify. <laughs> because Lucille Lesore has landed, and she's met coming off the train, and the lady meeting her will talk about her behind her back and call her Le Sewer. <sighs> like, she's trashy. She's got a bad southern accent, frizzy hair, too much makeup. Her clothes are all wrong. She, at this point, is nowhere near the polished I would imagine shell. she also probably has quite the chip on her shoulder after that childhood. So much. But, like, when we have this vision of Joan Crawford, it's this very polished veneer. and Right. She's older and you don't crack her and she's a survivor. Like, these are her right. up-and-coming hungry years, right? And I guess that's the thing that surprised me most. I watched a lot of young Joan Crawford in this research and she's so sweet. She's just not the picture that you have in your head. But she's rough and raw and ambitious. And she is going to work that six-month contract for all it is worth. Her first role, she's a body double for Norma Shearer in a film. She picks up a few more parts, but she's also going on a lot of dates with a lot of studio executives, which is what you do if you're on a $75 a week, six-month contract. But have you met Billy? Because she's going to make it or be damn trying. So her star is a little bit on the rise, and of course the press. There's this big magazine contest to name the star. Oh. And this is how she gets the name of Joan Crawford. Okay. That's unexpected. She hates it. Oh. Because she thinks Crawford sounds way too much like crawfish. But alas, voters, they're... Hey, it's crawfish or le sewer, so take your pick. By 1926, Joan is now on a list of the baby stars of Hollywood, along with Faye Ray and Mary Astor. Like, she's going to make her dreams come true, come hell or high water. More roles come, but it turns out that Joan is just waiting in the movie lot in 1927 where the two trains of our trashy divorces collision will come together. Hmm. Okay. Joan Crawford is in this movie called 12 Miles Out, and next door, Douglas Fairbanks is filming Women Love Diamonds. And have you met your future wife, Dougie Jr.? Okay, so they meet. Joan Crawford's like... <sighs> This boy is stuffy, like nothing happens, or maybe it was happening, because then Joan goes to see him in a stage performance and writes him this really saucy telegram after with all the compliments and butter biscuit flattery and like an affair is born. And maybe Joan's thinking dating him would be better than being passed around on the lot. And the advantage of this dating match is that Joan thinks Dougie Jr. is hot. Like he's pretty oh, yeah. hot. 
And Junior, on the other hand, is not really experienced with girls. He's like 18, 19, and Joan Crawford... A little older. 21 at least, but quite experienced in the ways of the world. Yeah, tragically. We'll go on to say that the thing that she and Douglas Fairbanks Jr. had in common was sex. Hmm. He likes to learn and she likes to teach, and it's all fun and games, younger stud and all that. And no one's really serious about this until maybe, just maybe, he could be a step up on the path that Billy has set for herself. Could not be more different, these two. Think Andy and Blaine in Pretty in Pink. Like, she's sewing her own clothes, and he is a pretty boy playing on the wrong side of the tracks. Like, she's cleaned after 30 of her peers, and he's been in great schools with lots of wealth and a movie star father. But now it's a great time to talk about the sexual compatibility of the Aries Sagittarius (laughs) matchup. Two fire signs, yo. And seriously, the two of them are both very, very pretty. And like Joan hasn't developed into the hardness and that veneer yet. This is her maturing into what she will become by the end of this marriage. But for right now, our Ram and our Archer are in love or lust or something. But not everyone is rooting for our couple. Annabeth mom, Dougie senior dad, Mary Pickford stepmom. No one is in for this. It's bad. Annabeth is like, Dougie, she's a fast girl. And Mary Pickford is kind of a side dish of trash candy here. Mary Pickford may have had some previous experience with something similar. So quick sum up here, because I really do want to talk about this on Patreon. Mary Pickford the stepmom to Dougie Jr., has a brother, Jack Pickford, and he marries a divorced up-and-coming star back in the late teens named Olive Thomas, who is the one that F. Scott Fitzgerald thinks that Zelda looks just like. This is all trash candy. Jack and Olive doesn't go well. They're way addicted to drugs, and Olive is going to die in Paris in 1920. It's messy. And It's a story for another day, but Mary Pickford, Hollywood queen, has already had to control so much of her image, her family. She's the queen of Hollywood. Like, she's like, Dougie Jr., don't, don't do this. Okay, you gotta be kidding me. Like, Joan Crawford is a gold digger. I've seen her kind before. Douglas Sr. isn't all that ruffled. He's like, boy needs to sow his wild oats and all that. Right? Yeah, but he's always been a kind of a distant father anyway, so. Great. By 1928, Joan and Junior are seriously dating, and now Senior and Mary Pickford are like, not cool. Because it doesn't seem to matter that when Junior has been to their home pick fair, he's always been in the guest house. He's never allowed to stay in the main house. And can you imagine, like, Dougie Junior is probably like, piss the fuck off, Dad. You got to fight for your right to party. I do what I want. So on New Year's Eve, 1928, Junior pops the question to Joan. Joan says yes, which is perhaps a really good career move because her trajectory is on the rise. Right. This match is going to get her to the next level, which is the drawing room at Pickfair. Like, this is the living room. You don't get better, more titled, more landed than Mary Pickford and Douglas Fairbanks Sr. It's a place to be in Hollywood in 1929. But Joan isn't welcome there. They're forbidden to go, and Dougie's in love, and it's a good way to pop off to Dad, and the wedding's on, and it doesn't matter that Joan and I can't come there anymore. June 3rd, 1929, 
New York. Joan's family shows up for the wedding. Anna Beth, Dougie Jr.'s mom, does show. Dougie Sr., Mary Pickford do not. It's quiet and simple. They spend their honeymoon at the Algonquin Hotel. He is 19. She is 21. Okay. Okay, so the press is taken by surprise. And all of Hollywood is trashing her. She's a cradle robber. She's a gold digger. She's not our kind. Oh, this is terrible. Mm -hmm. Everybody, like the high society set, is like, Junior, you married beneath you. There are no parties at Pickfair to celebrate once the newlyweds return. But that's okay, because the couple's going to do a few things. No need to go to Pickfair. They're going to buy their own home that they're going to call El Jodo, which is their combination of letters like Pickford and Fairbanks. So it's kind of a screw you to mom and dad. El Dojo is in Brentwood. Joan's going to live here for like 25 years. Wait, is it El Dojo or El Jodo? El Jodo. Sorry. El Jodo is in Brentwood. But it will counter Pickfair, like where Joan and Junior don't get invited for like another year. And Joan has been working on her diction and elocution because Dougie Jr. is like polishing her up a little. But at the same time, like, babe, just quit. Let me take care of you. I have tons of cash. Like, you don't need to be so ambitious. It's fine. I got you. But have you met Joan? She's not going to quit. And for her part, where he's helping her polish up a little bit, she's helping him become a little bit more assertive, like learning how to grow a set. Because of all of the self-work and working on diction and elocution, Joan's going to be first in line when MGM, who is the last studio to go to talkies, finally goes to talkies. Gotcha. Now she's ready to break into the scene. Again, her star is on the rise. This is 1929. Joan Crawford and Douglas Fairbanks Jr.'s Prince are together at Grauman's Chinese Theater. Originally, it was only Joan who was supposed to be there, but Dougie Jr.'s there with her, so they have a little lasting testament together to their love in the cement, which lasts longer than they do. Yeah. Okay. So Joan is working on her career goals and, like, will wait out Pickford and Fairbanks Sr. to where they're finally invited back. And it takes like a year. But when Joan finally gets in the door, she's entirely uncomfortable. She gets this really bad rap for being standoffish. Because when she goes, because her hands shake so much, she brings her knitting. And it gives her something to do. This is your classic. I'm kind of an introvert. I'm not really comfortable in the room. So I'm going to get involved in something else to take care of my anxiety. And people read it as, oh, that girl's a bitch. Right. Okay. It sounds like she really never did catch a break. Um, no, she in, doesn't. In terms of people around her. I mean, professionally, obviously, she's a huge success. But Well, if she'd only stuck to sewing, because there's this one legendary night where they're screening a film in the screening room, and Joan and Dougie Jr. start, like, making out with all of these Hollywood elites. And, like, Dougie Sr.'s not very happy, pulls Dougie Jr. out by the ear, doesn't go too well. But Junior's terribly in love with his wife. Terribly in love. I came across this piece of just written magic. This is from Vanity Fair, July 1930. These are still the good times, right? They've been married 13 months. And what a picture this paints of a very young Joan Crawford before every other 
label gets applied to her, I would like you to hear about Joan Crawford at 24, written by her husband, who's very much in love with her. Tell me. A Portrait of Joan Crawford by Douglas Fairbanks Jr. Joan Fairbanks is my bosom swelling. Nay Crawford is one of the few people in the film colony who does not change her manner at the close of the working day. If she is any different then, it is only an instinctive, nervous letdown after the tension to which she subjects herself during her work. She has the most remarkable power of concentration of anyone I have ever known. Under any circumstance, this tremendous faculty is at her very fingertips. She is consumed with an overwhelming ambition. I sincerely doubt if she has the faintest idea where her ambition is to carry her, but that doesn't worry her at all. She is always prepared for any emergency. She has a great capacity for study. If she feels that she is not up to standard in a certain line, she will go to any extreme to master it. Although she has a great desire to write, it is the one ambition in which she lacks the self-confidence that is evident in her other undertakings. In her spare time, when there is such time, she covers herself in yarn, threads, and needles, and proceeds to sew curtains and make various types of rugs. Entree new, they are quite good. She is not easily influenced and must be thoroughly convinced before she will waver in her opinion on any point. She must always feel herself moving forward, and when anything tends to arrest that progress, she sulks mentally. She will stand by a belief with Trojan ferocity. She has temperament without being temperamental. She demands the things to which she knows she has the right and will ask for no more until she knows with all sincerity that she is worthy of it. This is particularly true in her professional life. When she meets with disappointment, she has a tendency towards bitterness rather than remorse, which no doubt is a throwback from an acute memory of less happy days. She is extremely sensitive to surroundings and instantly conscious of any discord. When she is depressed, she falls into an all-consuming depth of melancholy out of which it is practically impossible to recover her. At these times, she has long crying spells. When it is over, she is like a flower that has had a sprinkling of rain and then blossoms out in brighter colors. She is extraordinarily nervous. She is frightened out of her wits to be left alone in the dark. She has a secret desire to eat everything with a spoon as small as a child would. She has seen life in its less fortunate aspects, yet remains thoroughly unsophisticated at heart. However, she likes to be thought sophisticated. Like many people who have had little happiness in their own childhood, she has a tremendous sympathy for children. She loves to play like a child and adores dolls. She takes a great interest in clothes and all things feminine, yet has the analytical mind of a man. She is an excellent businesswoman, but a poor trader. She is intolerant of people's weaknesses. If someone does her a wrong, she is slow in forgetting it, but when she does, there is no doubt of her attitude. It is difficult for her to hide her feelings, and she is embarrassingly honest in her opinions. She wears her fingernails at an abnormal length. She is forever devising new ways to fix her hair. She loves to cook. She is thoughtful to a point of extravagance. She never drinks, 
but smokes like a cowboy on his last cigarette. She is sensitive about her lower teeth being crooked. She has a deadly fear of all doctors. She takes a pardonable pride in the strides that she has made in her chosen field, yet she is never satisfied with her work. Jealousy is not in her makeup, but she resents those who have become successful without serving the same trying apprenticeship that she herself experienced. Did he publish this somewhere? Like this how- is Vanity Fair. Okay. This is an article in Vanity Fair from July 1930. It's almost done. I just, you don't ever, this is 24-year-old Joan Crawford. Let's break the myth for a second. And like, it's not, it's exactly what she is, but it's such a fascinating portrait of a young woman she loves to have a masseuse give her a treatment and she could spend hours every day having her head scratched she walks pigeon-toed her temper in its threatening stages is alarming but actually it is harmless she has a passion for antique furniture she drinks quantities of coffee and puts away at least eight or ten glasses of water every day she has a tendency to dramatize any anecdote which she may relate Music affects her emotionally. She is sentimental to an extreme degree and is gullible when the most obvious sob stories are told. There are innumerable things that I might add to what I've already stated, but I hope that I have already given a fair picture of her. She is a 10-year-old girl who has put on her mother's dress and has done it convincingly. Hmm. There was no part of that I could cut. It was just such a, Mm -hmm. I mean, it's sweet and it's a hell of a capture Mm -hmm. of Joan in 800 words, right? And I think Junior has a pretty fair estimation of his wife. But alas, Joan, who knows every corner of the block, is getting just a wee bit bored with Dougie Junior. Well, antsy. By 1930, Mm -hmm. Joan is the biggest rising female star in Hollywood. She's making it happen, and her marriage is not really her priority, because now she's made it into the most popular places in town. It may not be the advantage that she quite thought, and she's making tracks all on her own. In 1931, Joan's going to make five films, like there's no slowing her down, and some of these films will be with the very handsome Clark Gable. And, well, an affair is born. So Joan and Clark are going to make eight films together in their respective careers. And they will have a decades-long affair that transcends through a few marriages on both sides. Like, Clark Gable is truly his own episode, but let me intersect a little trash candy here. Throw a little down for you. Clark will come to Hollywood about the same time as Joan, like year before 1924. They have similar backstories. They both kind of come from nothing. They both will marry into some kind of credibility in their first round of marriage. Because when Clark comes to Hollywood in 1924, he'll come with his acting coach and future first wife, a lady named Josephine Dillon, who's 17 years older than Clark Gable. (laughs) And that marriage lasts like five, six years. But Clark Gable is divorced in a free man in 1930, just in the nick of time to begin a hot and heavy affair with the married to the king of Hollywood's son, Joan Crawford. Joan Crawford will say her affair with Clark Gable was sublime. She will say he is the only man I ever loved. There is serious and intense chemistry 
with these two. But part of the thing when they're together, they never want to be committed to each other. It's the secret of it that makes it fun for the both of them. Okay. It's like this refuge it's from spicy the storm. because it's private. Correct. Okay. They're still carrying on when Clark Gable marries wife number two, a girl named Maria Langham. They're going to, Clark and Maria, remain married until 1938, although it is really unhappy for the last few years of that marriage. Clark Gable will only agree to do Gone with the Wind because it will give him enough cash to divorce Maria finally. Wow. That is the only reason Clark Gable is starring as Rhett Butler in Gone with the Wind. Wow. Mm Mm-hmm. Is so he can get a trashy divorce. Awesome. He's been trying to divorce Maria for years, but still carrying on with Joan. So back up to 1930, Joan and Clark Gable are hot for each other. In 1931, their film comes out and it's like uh, uh, Brad Pitt and Angie in whatever movie they did together. Like you would have to be willingly ignorant to like not see that these two were in heat for I each other. I think you're thinking of Mr. and Mrs. Smith. There you go. Mm. Their affair continues through 1932, and by this time, Joan's done. She wants out, and the studio is like, oh my god. We have Joan Crawford and Clark Gable doing it in the background. Douglas, uh, what do we do? How do we deal with this nightmare? So in the last fail-safe Hail Mary pass, the studio will send Joan and Dougie Jr. on a second honeymoon. Which does not bring them together. In fact, it has the opposite effect. I'm surprised. It's terrible. Like your boss telling you to get right with... Get it together. Didn't work. Weird. When they come back, Joan is off to her next film role and she will ask Doug not to come along. Like, don't follow me. She's checked out. She wants a divorce. The other thing that happens in 1932, Grand Hotel comes out. This is the movie of 1932. Joan is in it. Her star has landed. She is no longer in need of Dougie Jr. Okay. Don't go feeling all that bad for him. He's cheating too. He tries to unsuccessfully bed Catherine Hepburn. He crashes and burns on that one. But Junior's definitely getting around. So if you thought them hooking up was a big thing for the press, wait until their fall out. Holy cats. Douglas Jr. will say that his parents psychologically hasten the end of the marriage, but there's something very fascinating that happens. There's this article from March 1934. I'm sorry, March 1933, where Jr. says he has no intention of going to Paris to divorce Joan. He is in love with her and is not like everything is fine. Also, he is not planning to marry a Mrs. Jorgen Deltz, who is the former wife of a chemical engineer who has filed a $60,000 suit against Douglas Jr. for alienation Uh of affection and false imprisonment. Oh, my God. Seems (laughs) bad. Seems really bad. He, Douglas, denies that all of this is pure poppycock. Joan is quoted in this article that pretty much they are never, ever, ever getting back together. Yeah. The divorce is final, May 12th, 1933, although the couple will remain friendly throughout the rest of their lives. Like, no hard feelings. Joan got her career. Dougie Jr. got it as dad. They'll claim they learned a lot from each other. They speak highly of each other. They go to dinner. They're seen socially together. Marriage one and done. 
complete. But let's do a little wrap up here because there's so many delicious little bits of trash candy still lying on the ground. Douglas Jr. will go on to marry again in 1939 and very happily live with wife number two until her death in 1988. Wow. They have three kids, eight grandkids, ten great-grandchildren, homes in London, Manhattan, and of course the beach house in Palm Springs. Douglas Jr. will organize, will help organize the Franco-British War Relief. He's appointed by FDR as an envoy to South America in 1941. In the 60s, it's rumored that Douglas Fairbanks also, this is untrue, but it's rumored that it is his rear end in the incriminating naked man photos of the infamous divorce trial of Lady Colin Campbell in London in 1963. He has an accomplished life. It's great. After Mary, his wife, dies, he will marry once more again. Douglas Jr. passes away at the age of 90 in the year 2000. Now, hypocrites, Douglas Sr. and Mary Pickford, right, with all the, we're going to keep Joan from, go on to divorce in 1936. Douglas Sr. is immediately going to remarry. He remarries a lady named Sylvia Ashley. 12 days later? Uh, Pretty much, yeah. Like, Sylvia Ashley's first marriage was to a British peer that has crashed and burned. That's not the crazy part. The crazy part is that Sylvia Ashley is going to go on to have three more husbands after Douglas Sr. once he dies in 1939. Sylvia Ashley's husband number four, Clark Gable. (laughs) who she marries in 1949, and they'll divorce in 1951. What? really weird. Oh, my God. We have so many juicy bits with Clark and Joan in our future, because we're leaving Joan here on the Trashy Divorces Depot, waiting to continue her story. She has more marriages, more divorces, a feud with Betty Davis to get into, children to adopt, all coming for you in future episodes. Trash Cans. Number one, there are so many repetitions in this story. Trauma at birth. Uh, I was going to say. Parent runs an opera house. Run out of town on a rail. Young bad first marriage. I worked as a stripper. Like, Yeah, it's tough to. It is repetition city all over this one. It's tough to hold her accountable for much of this. Clearly, like many things were done to her that if she'd had a say in the matter, would not. Like, her reputation is definitely cemented in our social conscious, but I wanted to take a little minute to get down to the how does Joan Crawford actually get to become that? This story has everything. Tragic backstories, cheating on both sides, Hollywood scandal. Like, I could have gone twice as long, but for this one, it's a classic. I'm going straight up. Five trash cans, classic trashy divorce. It has everything you'd ever want. I mean, in a trashy divorce story. All right. Don't worry, they get worse when it comes to Joan Crawford, but this is the nicest one. Okay. Well, I mean, you know, you, you want to ease into your trashy divorces if you have a string of them. So five stars, five stars. Because once she emerges from this marriage, she really has that veneer that you imagine. But until this, like, She's fresh-faced. She's lovely. She's effervescent. She's not that hard um, hard candy shell yet. Mm-hmm. She is now, but 
she wasn't for the last 45 minutes. Yeah. Anyway, that is Joan Crawford and Douglas Fairbanks Jr. That is a hell of a story. Hell of a story. All right, you ready to draw for next week? May as well, yeah. Ooh, Let me. I've got to move the me, cat. Well, I'll just pass it over to the cat. Okay, thanks. Mm-hmm. Uh, I go first next week. Yes. So I am going to draw who's in the. Oh, oh, oh. Oh, Ooh. I'm excited. Oh. This is my favorite. What's your clue there? Uh, we spent a lot of time talking about her brother this week on Patreon. Hmm. That's my clue. All right. I'm really happy that I finally got to Boris Johnson. I know, but I, now I'm sad. Now I'm not sure what all I've got in here. So, oh, what um, what's <laughs> what's in your cup? Oh, never oh. mind. Next week will be amazing. <gasps> oh, listeners have requested this a one lot, so a lot, much. a lot, a lot. Do you have a clue? Um, uh, oh, just I don't know. Some high seas piracy. I I don't know. Oh, we actually are going to talk about some piracy we stuff are. on we've Patreon this week, so some, it goes for Patreon in the future. We've got some piracy going on. Some uh, pony boy pirates. That's good timing, now that I think about it. Fantastic. All right. All right. All right. Oh, next yeah. week's going to be fun. Yeah. We hope you join us then. Thank you for joining us this week. Yes. Y'all are Ooh. awesome. Cat just tried to bite you. Yeah, I am just would like him not to lick himself. I know. He's... 30 seconds, man. So, hey, thank you for joining us this week. Thank you. Guys. Thanks, everybody. We're excited about next for week. For tuning in. Don't forget, if you need more Trash Candy, you can go to bit.ly slash Trash Candy Quarantine yep. to get a bunch of free Trash Candy mm-hmm. over there. Find us on Patreon, Trashy Divorces. Until then. Yeah. We can't wait to see you next week. Really can't. Or, oh my God. A, it's going to be a good week. Hella lineup for Trashy mm-hmm. Divorces. Oh, I'm so week. excited. Thanks again for tuning in, everybody. Until then, keep it trashy. Keep it so, so trashy. Aye. (laughs) And thanks to you for listening. Trashy Divorces is a Hemlock Creatives production created and produced right here in Atlanta, Georgia by us, Stacey and Alicia, with a little research and writing help from the brilliant Melissa O. Our art is by Sydney V. Smith. That's Sydney V. Smith at CarbonMade.com. And our music is used with permission of Ratsy. Check her out at Ratsy's store on Instagram and definitely drop into Ratsy's store anytime you're in Oberlin, Ohio. You can contact us at trashydivorces at gmail.com or find us on the World Wide Web at trashydivorces.com. If you need more trash candy in your life, our Patreon community includes some of the very best humans around and thousands of hours of bonus content at every level of support. Join the fun at patreon.com slash trashydivorces. Interested in some Trashy Divorces swag? Check out our merch shop and Trash Panda Enthusiasm Society at bit.ly slash trashy gear want to advertise with us reach out to sales at advertisecast.com for more information and last but not least come play with us on social media i keep most of our trashy divorces instagram hopping stacy and i share it up over on facebook including our trashy divorces podcast discussion group come join us over there and thanks again everybody for listening keep it trashy y'all